Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wandri and Brunong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We recognize sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. It's Wednesday, 30th of March, and I'm Ella here in the studios. I've got Jacob joining me in just a moment, and yeah, we've got a full show planned for you this morning. Um, So yesterday was the federal budget announcement, so we've got a couple of things related to that, and we might have a chat about that later on in the show. Uh, Lots of winners and losers. I think the government are going for a last grab at a few votes before the election. Uh, But first up, I'll run through the plan for the show today. So at 7.10, we're going to hear from COP26 Youth Delegate Leader, uh, Amelia Goongridge, about some of the accessibility issues experienced at the United Nations Climate Conference in Glasgow last year, and in particular, how First Nation peoples fared in the negotiating table. And then at 7.30, we're going to be looking at concerns over climate change effects in the Antarctic, which have reached new heights recently. Uh, so the Antarctic has been experiencing, experiencing, excuse me, it's early, experiencing a heat wave with some parts experiencing 40 degrees Celsius above their monthly averages. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, a massive ice shelf the size of Rome collapsed. Uh, so I've got Jacob in the studio with me now. Jacob, who are we chatting to? Good this morning. morning. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to be having a discussion with Dr. Arian Purich, who is a research fellow in the ARC Special Research Initiative Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future at Monash University. So they've done quite a bit of research about some of the the factors influencing uh, increased melting in the Antarctic. So that should be a really insightful interview. Um, about what's happening because it's a uh, it's pretty frightening stuff. Yeah, yep, very frightening. Um, some massive changes that are going to affect um, yeah the rest of the world. I think so. It'll be interesting to hear how it all connects. And um, you've been busy this week, Jacob. You've organised a few for us. Um, At 7.50, we're going to be hearing from Amnesty International, right? Yeah, that's correct. So we're going to be hearing from uh, someone called Tim O'Connor from Amnesty International. And if you didn't know, Amnesty this week have partnered with a group of other advocacy organisations, and they're campaigning to increase the humanitarian intake of our government because it has been steadily decreasing by 5,000 a year since 2020. And they're being capped in this budget to 1,300. So there are additional places for Afghan nationals, um, but this will obviously subside eventually um, in future years. So Amnesty are saying that there's a lot of crises happening around the world. And I think right now, more than ever, we really need to be supporting our international neighbours You know, there's crises unfolding in Ukraine. Um, There's the ongoing crises happening in Hong Kong and Myanmar. 
um, West Papua. I mean, a lot of these places obviously require support on the ground, but I think for a lot of them, there will be people that need to seek asylum, and Australia really does need to step up and, and do its bit. So we're going to be hearing a bit from, from Tim O'Connor, who has a background in um, in foreign aid and, and budgets and things. So talking about humanitarian intake uh, in the budget and then bringing you to the end of the show, we're going to be ending on a bit of a lighter note, speaking with Brendan Black. Now, Brendan is the writer and director of a new play. It's happening at La Mama Theatre in Carlton. And the play is called Empathy Training. And it's a little bit of a look into the world of uh, social media and, and self-centeredness. And I think it takes a look at five narcissistic characters on their journey to <laughs> Becoming more empathetic. <laughs> does that remind you of anyone, Ella? It sure does. Yeah, I was just reading about this uh, play last night, and it sounds like a lot of fun. I think we've all, yeah, heard lots of stories of um, various people doing empathy training, and um, <laughs> yeah, some with more success than others. I think um, that, uh, yeah, uh, whole process of um, being forced to atone for past actions, but it being more about the appearance than, um, yeah, true change, I think a lot of us can relate to. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about it and the inspiration behind it. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> and, um, yeah, did you get much of a chance to look at the budget yesterday, Jacob? No, I think it came out a bit later on during the day. I was sort of checking on my Twitter to see if anyone would be sort of live tweeting what was going on, but... I have not, but I've heard there's a lot of discussion around rising petrol prices um, and the, the general rising cost of living, which apparently, I mean, I'm not an economics expert, but I don't think it takes an expert to know that the, the cost of living is soaring above uh, wages increases. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think the big one on petrol is, yeah, they've said they'll cut the petrol tax in half for six months, I believe it is. Mm. Um, and yeah, a bit of a tax cut for low and middle income earners. Um, I heard that direct from my mum. She was talking to my brother and I last night. Um, she was saying we're in line to save $450, but you better not vote for Scott Morrison because of it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm hoping a lot of people don't uh, follow that. <laughs> oh, yes. Well... Um, but, yeah, I think there were pros and cons. I've just had, yeah, sort of read through the highlights. It looks like um, mm-hmm. a few good changes to parental leave. So now um, instead of uh, the maternity leave being separate to um, other parent leave or whatever it used to be, it's now all combined so parents can choose how they separate it. So there's more incentive for fathers to take it or they've reduced oh. the incentive for it to just be the women, which is nice. Welcome change. Um, and, yeah, I believe if you're a single parent, then you can access both. So, um, of course, most single parents or 80% are women, so also good for women. But, uh, yeah, a lot of things that were a little disappointing. Um, it would be mm. good to speak to yeah Amnesty International today. I think a lot of people were, yeah, disappointed by the lack and increase to... Um, spending for foreign aid, um, so we'll hear what they have to say. And, yeah, as you are saying, they've announced that one-off uh, extra um, amount of places, sorry, gathering my words, <laughs> for um, Afghan refugees, which is great. But, yeah, as you said, it's um, not really a systemic change that's going to go into the future. Um, mm. We kind of need to change our approach because it's pretty lacking. Certainly. Um, yeah, lots to discuss. Anyway, um, we'll get started with some music, I reckon, and um, yeah, play this segment uh, from Amelia Goongridge just after. So, stay tuned. (laughs) 
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and now we're going to hear from Amelia Goongridge, a Master of Environment student from University of Melbourne, who attended the COP26 International Climate Conference last year as a youth delegate. Uh, Amelia interviewed with Vivian Langford from the 3CR Climate Action Show, where she spoke with a seasoned negotiator and Maori man, Tak Daniel, about how Indigenous people experience the international negotiating table at COP26 conference. So, here's Amelia. My name is Amelia Gunaraj, and today I will be your guide as guest host while we talk about First Nations representation in international climate responses. There was huge rhetorical emphasis on the importance of Indigenous peoples at COP26, which makes sense due to both how much work First Nations peoples have done in protecting the planet for thousands of years and how many of these communities are also on the front lines of climate change. However, at COP26, there were lots of issues regarding accessibility and the actual impact of Indigenous contributions on the final texts which emerged from Glasgow. Lots of Indigenous delegates reported being unable to access events or negotiations due to COVID capacity restrictions, and some events were also undermined by inadequate support. For example, one event I attended on the Amazon rainforest had no interpreter, meaning someone from the audience had to volunteer halfway through the event to translate some Spanish from the Indigenous representatives there. The biggest issue, of course, is that many of the requests of Indigenous peoples have not yet been addressed. Amazon Watch, a group dedicated to protecting the Amazon and building solidarity with Indigenous peoples, noted that the negotiations failed to secure grievance mechanisms for damage already suffered by Indigenous peoples or ensure that Indigenous rights and territories will be protected going forward. So to talk about these issues, I'm now going to introduce you to Tak Daniel, who currently works as a consultant and policy analyst. In the past, however, TAC worked as a negotiator for the New Zealand government and has extensive experience liaising with Indigenous groups and on Indigenous issues. TAC, considering your experience, we'd love to know your thoughts, as well as your personal perspective, being Maori, on how far we've come and where we need to go. TAC, welcome. Kia ora, Amelia, and thank you very, very much for your introduction and also for prefacing uh, what this conversation is about. Firstly, I'll just do my usual thing and where I acknowledge where I'm from. So, kanuita mihi kia kini tuheitia, makau ariki, arawa tamariki mokupuna, me etifare kahui ariki. Amelia, I'm from the Tainui tribe in Waikato in New Zealand, and uh, we have a long association with uh, Indigenous rights and ad- Indigenous perspectives, and also presenting at forums such as the uh, United Nations and other international um, events. Being a government person, it was perceived that I would be conflicted. However, because I had a role at that time in my negotiation period of managing a New Zealand uh, international piece of work, which is around Indigenous property rights and a claim called the Y262 claim. And so I had the uh, unique perspective of being able to think as an iwi Māori person as well as a government person. Uh, and so I was lucky in that respect. 
So that's my background per se. I was involved a lot in the Convention on Biological Diversity, which has links to the climate change program. And I was lucky to negotiate with lots of people, particularly indigenous people around the world. So coming back to your initial question, your preface is absolutely right. I supported a young Māori uh, woman who's also Klamath uh, from the Oregon region, and her dad is from the far north in New Zealand. And I wrote a mm. small paper for her about how to navigate through uh, a UN uh, conference, in particular the climate conference. And at that conference, it was stipulated that the voices of particularly indigenous people, women, and mm -hmm. uh, the youth would be given credence and would be given uh, the ability to, to speak their mind. However, as per your intro, yes, I heard that they were also marginalized and kept away from uh, making the inter interventions that they wish to do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, there have been many talks and reports from people who attended COP26 about what their experiences were like. And part of the problem was just not really even being let in the room, you know. And I guess, would you be able to speak a little bit just from your own perspective on why equitable representation and participation is so important, you know, in these big climate conferences? And, for example, in the upcoming COP27 at the end of this year in Egypt? Yes. The, if I go back a little step, just slightly, the reason mm. for equitable representation is because of the variety of voices and experiences which Indigenous people have, particularly mm. because of their inextricable relationship to nature and the processes and rituals that those Indigenous people have in order to create and sustain their relationship with nature. So that's a basic, you know, uh, premise by which Indigenous people work, and I found that throughout the world, despite being Māori and having our own processes back home, when I spoke to other Indigenous people, that was the key. They have the rituals, and they have the sustainability uh, focus, and they also have responsibility for themselves as well as for those elements of nature that they are close to. So coming to representation, particularly with a uh, view to Egypt this year, one of the issues that the climate change from the UN side find difficult is how to fund or how to support those those voices going forward. Mm. There are groups that do have um, a broader reach that are indigenous groups, and there are lots of indigenous groups that are made up of representatives who go forth and represent the multitude of voices that go to them and say, can you represent us, please, because you have scale. And th these groups do do a great job and negotiated with a lot of them. They're still there, they're still doing the work, and they won't step back. That's one way through which people can also find representation. The other reason that people find it hard is because their ritualistic processes and how they manage it in terms of their law on their land is mm. so distant and far away from the legal processes of the countries in which they reside. So the legal framework as well as the Indigenous law, often do not meet, but there are ways in which they can be met without Indigenous people having to subsume themselves to a legal, um, a legal framework. So that's the other way around to try and mm. find means by which both sets of knowledge can come together to benefit Indigenous people as well as the other peoples within that country. Would you be able to maybe describe... Uh 
what, what needs to be done in order so that these these processes can happen so that we can bridge, you know, bring in Indigenous groups that might have these kind of different practices so that, you know, these conferences are more accommodating so that we can make use of this wealth of knowledge. Like, do we need specialised people or is it a matter of, you know, funding these organisations better or what what are the links that we need to be making going forward? A lot of effort has been put into just proliferation and just getting a voice on a seat inside a meeting somewhere, when in fact, if you switch it around and take a longer-term strategic approach, what is it that younger cohorts are going to decide to coalesce around and work backwards from there? That's the approach Mm. I would give. Indigenous knowledge must stay with the people to whom it belongs. I I saw a lot of... um youth Indigenous representation at COP26. Um, and I know I've listened to this webinar recently um, that was conducted by SEED, uh, the SEED Indigenous Youth Climate Network here in Australia. Um, and uh, one of the speakers, Tiana Jakicevic, she's also Maori, she talked about how, you know, they were really getting in there. Um, they were in the negotiation rooms, and I'm sure that was like a, a great learning experience. I'm sure there's still a lot to learn being young and at the very beginning of their journey in this sense. Um, what advice would you give to these young um, Indigenous people who are already doing so much but have, you know, a long future ahead of them um, in at this negotiation table? There's a couple of things I would do. I wrote a paper for my friend's daughter, who's Māori and she's up in the Klamath area in Oregon. And I really gave a background to the dynamics and what occurs in a meeting like that. And you have the universal makers of policy and, and then universal takers. And the takers normally situate around price. So I would say to people who are want to negotiate and have a longer negotiating career, is to understand the dynamics and who those players are and why those players are there. What is it that they have and what is it that they need? And while this may seem like you're coming at it from a view of subservience, in fact, when you look at power-sharing relationships, there is a lot that Indigenous people have and should hold on to that no one else should know about. But that Mm. very presence is sufficient for people to say, hey, what is it that they have? So knowing who you are, knowing what you represent and why is really important. And I think most Indigenous people have that. The next step after that is to understand the dynamics of the negotiation frame. Also, too, to have people um, who are Indigenous but who are in negotiating teams representing their governments. They will have an idea about what's in the middle and what can be negotiated and what cannot be negotiated. So you get an idea about how much leeway you have in impressing upon a government or an NGO or a commercial company or a research company, you have an idea about how much you can impress upon them for them to give you space to have a voice and to have some scale in the deciding of the text. The text is where it happens because it comes legally binding. And that's the hard bit. If you can find within your own, within your own rituals a means by which you can not translate but you can have that represented without giving away the sacredness of your rituals and the sacredness of your purpose, you can find a way uh, to represent those things that are vital to you and your identity represented in a legalistic framework, then you're halfway to getting uh, your goals met. 
Yeah, that's great advice and beautifully put, Tak. Yeah, so I guess like that comes with experience and also dedicated learning, um, but also definitely requires a lot of cooperation and um, from from non-Indigenous people. Um, I think that's something that a lot of, uh, well, I hope more non-Indigenous people are thinking of going forward into these um, into these meetings is like how we can be um, helpful rather than a hindrance um, and, you know, not take up space that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't belong to us, you know? So I guess my last question is what can non-Indigenous people do at, at these conferences or in general in order to support um, the work of First Nations or Indigenous peoples? I think the legalistic systems have set up for non-Indigenous people not to succeed. It's, that's a little bit crude in my, mm-hmm. my reference, but uh, the scrum is screwed towards, because of the way the law is and what makes it legally binding, are words on a page that have an effect and governments adopt those words and say, yes, we will align to that particular legal framework or those legal words that you're telling us. By having, just going back to the previous point, by having a means by which you can have representation, your, your intentions can be represented in legal text, that then gives you one purpose and one means by which to get your stuff in. The other way, the other way, however, is also for non-Indigenous people to go back to their roots and understand why Indigenous people are working this way. Uh, mm. What are the barriers to Indigenous people having a voice and having a say and having some equity in this conversation? The other thing non-Indigenous people can do is to compare and contrast themselves without scale and just mm. look at how will this be for my children. Mm-hmm. And something that we put across when I was negotiating in Cali many, many years ago was I said, because it, the conversation got mined, and so I put up a proposal that, with the caveat that our children and your children, those of you with scale and those of us without scale, our children will come together. And if we make a decision that's based solely on the scale and the thoughts of a particular type particular group or particular type of thinking, our children, when they come together, will denigrate us for not making a decision that was inclusive. Because Mm. they will come together, they may have relationships, and their children may succeed both our knowledge sets, both our traditions. So we actually have to think strategically about the effect in the future, and that future is now. So I would say non-Indigenous people get alongside uh, your indigenous folks, those people who you are close to, get along and speak, talk and share a shared future. If you have a shared future, then, then you are able to find what is common and what is not common. You work on what is common, and for those things that are not common, you, re, you repackage them as means for things to not overcome, but as challenges from which you can learn. Once you have those challenges meted out and pulled apart, as things to learn from, therein you start to find other strengths, other opportunities, other means to go forward. It's really about time. That's yeah, absolutely. All of yeah, no, that's brilliant. You know, I think, and very true. You know, taking the time to listen and reflect. Um, I mean, sometimes it's uh, difficult when things are happening so quickly, but th- things won't be done correctly if we don't take the time. And that was Amelia Greenridge talking with Tack Daniel about the Indigenous response to the COP26 conference. Um, and a big thank you to the 3CR Climate Action Show for sharing this conversation with us. 
Uh, to hear more stories like this, you can check out the Climate Action Show every Monday evening. That's on from 5 till 6 p.m. on 3CR 855 a.m. All right, we're going to go to another music break now. Uh, when we come back, we'll be speaking with Dr. Ariane uh, Purich from Monash University about some alarming changes to the Antarctic. Uh, but in the meantime, here's Sunny Today.
you're listening to 3CR. And we just heard a track there uh, from Sheena Williams and his African percussionist. Um, And now we're going to talk about the Antarctic and some rather alarming changes. We're joined this morning by Dr. Ariane Purich. Antarctica made headlines this week after an ice shelf in East Antarctica the size of New York City crumbled. And this is an unprecedented move and potentially is a warning sign for what's to come in our changing climate. However, there remain still many scientific uncertainties. So this morning we are joined by Dr. Ariane Purich, who is a research fellow who specializes in Southern Ocean climate variability and change in the ARC Special Research Initiative, Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future at Monash University. Ariane, thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So can you give us a bit of a rundown? What is happening in East Antarctica right now? Yeah, sure. So in the last two weeks, there have been two important climatic events occurring in East Antarctica. And before we get going to orient the listeners, East Antarctica is the region of Antarctica directly to the south of Australia and to the south of the Indian Ocean. And East Antarctica is is higher and its climate is colder than that of West Antarctica, which is the region to the south of South America. And so... In East Antarctica, firstly, around the 15th of March, um, as you guys have said, the the Conga ice shelf broke off from the Antarctic continent and disintegrated. And then secondly, around the same time and and peaking a few days after the ice shelf collapsed, there has been this really extreme heat wave over East Antarctica. Um, And the temperatures in East Antarctica are back to normal now. And on the high inland areas, they're about minus 60 degrees and the heat wave has passed. But Ice shelves collapsing are very rare events, especially in East Antarctica, and the heat wave over the region was extreme and unprecedented. And the fact that these two events that happened so close together in time and in the same region, um, it was really unexpected. Yeah, it sounds like it was a, a bit of an unprecedented move, as you said. It, it, I think it's one of the more colder regions of Antarctica. And we, as you said, there was a heat wave recently. Do we know if this is linked uh, to the ice shelf collapse? And what more do we know about the causes of this? Yeah. So, uh, look, it's hard to say for sure at this early stage, um, considering uh, the ice shelf. So the Konga ice shelf, has, uh, as you guys have said, it was about the size of, of a city. It was 50 kilometres long and it was 20 kilometres wide. And it was, it was holding on to the ice sheet onto Antarctica on one of its edges. Um, and it's been disintegrating for decades, it's been losing little chunks of icebergs into the ocean. Um, and it's been happening pretty slowly. Um, but uh, sort of over the last year or so, it started decaying more rapidly. Um, and around on the 15th of March, it broke off from the continent completely. Um, and that's what we mean when we say that it um, collapsed. Now, if we think about the timing of the two extreme events, um, satellite observations suggest that the ice shelf collapsed around the 15th of March. Um, and the hottest temperatures of um, the heat wave in East Antarctica in the inland regions, which uh, is where we've been seeing a lot about in the news, they were actually recorded on the 18th of March, a couple of days after the um, ice shelf collapse. The hottest temperatures at the coast, um, for example, at the Australian research station Casey, um, occurred a few days prior to the inland regions. So as, as the warm air that caused the heat wave um, travelled inland, it hit the coastal regions first. Um, and so Casey recorded its maximum temperatures on the 16th of March. Um, this is still a day before the ice shelf collapsed. So given this timing, look, it's, it's hard to say that the heat wave was the main driver of the ice shelf collapse. And, and we've been seeing this ice shelf 
slowly collapsing for decades. Um, and we know that the ice shelves, uh, the, the main driver of their collapse is, is ocean melting from below. Um, but we can't completely rule out an influence from atmospheric processes, and it, it could be possible that um, sort of this, this heat wave was the final straw that caused the disintegration of, of the ice shelf. Um, and so it's something that a lot of scientists are working to understand. Um, these two events happening at the same time is really remarkable and unexpected. And I guess a key point here is that both of these events occurred under a backdrop of global warming. Yeah, so as you said, it's a little too early to um, definitively link the two events, at least in terms of cause and effect, um, though people yeah. are understandably wondering, yeah, um, if the same cause um, has resulted in both. Um, this, uh, the heat wave sounded really extreme. I was reading before that, yes, yeah, some areas were experiencing temperatures 40 degrees Celsius above the average. Um, yes. Are you able to tell us a bit more about the cause of the heat wave? Yeah, so the, the heat wave, it was, it was unprecedented. Um, it was, we haven't seen anything like it before. So there was this large flow of warm and moist air, so sort of from the south of Australia, um, into the Antarctic region. You might have uh, heard the term atmospheric river, um, which was also a term used for the, the New South Wales and Queensland floods. And so this atmospheric river means this region in the atmosphere where just warmer, moist air is flowing uh, towards a, a certain area, in this case, East Antarctica. Um, and the Antarctic continent as a whole was about five degrees warmer than usual, but these sort of temperature anomalies, these temperature differences compared to usual were really focused on a large region of inland um, East Antarctica um, and, and two of the scientific stations, Bostock and Concordia that are both located inland and about 3,000 metres above sea level saw these crazy temperatures. They saw uh, temperatures 35 degrees or 40 degrees warmer than what they would usually expect in March. So um, Bostock station recorded a temperature of minus 17 degrees and minus 17 degrees sounds pretty cold but it's usually about minus 60 degrees in March um, and the minus 17 degrees recorded there was 15 degrees hotter than the previous March record. Um, to break a record by that much, it's, it's really remarkable. So, like, to yeah. put that into perspective, like, Melbourne's hottest March temperature is 41 degrees. Can you imagine if we had a heat wave in March in Melbourne of 56 degrees? That's what occurred in East Antarctica. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty unbelievable. And so you were saying this... Um ice shelf, uh, it's been collapsing over a, a period of time or um, becoming more and more unstable, is that right? Yeah, so um, uh, ice, shelves, ice shelves collapse naturally um, and, and the Konga ice shelf had been losing small iceberg chunks for decades um, and the, the collapse had, had started to accelerate and so this suggests that it was driven by ocean melting from below, um, so ice shelves float on the ocean and the ocean is warmer than the ice underneath and it melts away the ice shelf. Um, and this is how ice shelves usually collapse. Um, and so it's likely that Konga was going to collapse and disintegrate at some point anyway, but what we don't know is whether the heat wave sort of tipped it over the edge. Mm, and it's been described as something that obviously wasn't really anticipated to happen this quick. What do you think this says about the uncertainties of our changing climate? Yeah, so ice shelf collapses are rare, and, and particularly in East Antarctica. So East Antarctica is colder, and, and there are differences in topography and the ocean circulation compared to West Antarctica. And so we've seen some ice shelf collapses over recent decades, particularly in the Antarctic Peninsula region in the West, 
um, you might have heard of the Larsen B ice shelf that collapsed. Um, scientists have often thought that the East Antarctic ice shelves are going to be more stable. Um, and I guess what's concerning is the large number of ice shelves collapsing in recent decades because they're usually very rare events. And so when we consider all of this together um, and collapse in East Antarctica, um, it does suggest that the ice shelf changes are occurring due to, to global warming. And it is very difficult to attribute the collapse of an individual ice shelf to global warming, but we know that they're melted from the bottom where they're in contact with the ocean, and we know that there's been an overall warming of the Southern Ocean due to increasing greenhouse gases. Um, look, as for the uncertainties of our changing climate, um, you know, an ice shelf collapse is rare and it's very dramatic, and especially in East Antarctica, but they are something that we expect to happen under global warming. Um, and so, you know, maybe the timing and, and the exact processes uh, are something that need to be looked into further, but it is actually um, a, a type of event that we do expect to see more of. And so to say they're uncertain, I wouldn't exactly say that because they are something that has been projected. Absolutely. And I think more generally, as you said, it's um, something that we're going to see more of in the future. So what are some of the risks of accelerated melting in the Arctic and Antarctic? Yeah, so look, accelerated melting in the polar regions will raise global sea levels. Um, so ice shells themselves, like the Conga ice shell, they're ice that has formed on land, but it's flowed out to sea. And so they're still attached to the land ice, but they're floating on the ocean. And so when they break off, they don't cause the sea level to rise. And so the analogy for these is like if you have a cool drink with ice cubes in it and your ice cubes melt, your drink doesn't overflow. And so the Kong ice shelf won't cause sea level rise. But ice shelves are really, really important because they're attached to the land ice. Um, and uh, they, the land ice we call the ice sheet. Um, and the ice shelves slow down the flow of these ice sheets into the ocean. And so once the ice shelves collapse, the ice sheet flow into the ocean more quickly and these are what cause sea level rise. Um, and so the, the Konga ice shelf itself, the catchment area that feeds into where it used to be attached, um, is pretty small and so the, the Konga ice shelf collapse is unlikely to have a large global impact but if lots of ice shelves start collapsing, if this is a sign of what's to come, um, this is when we can really start seeing increase in melt from the ice sheets on the land and this causes global sea level rise. Um, and, you know, there are other effects as well. Um, my own research uh, is interested in looking at uh, how the extra fresh water from the melting ice shelves and sheets uh, can change the ocean circulation. And this can have sort of large-scale climate feedbacks. Um, it can warm the subsurface ocean and this can melt the ice shelves further and you can um, have this positive feedback. And changes in Antarctica really affect the globe and they highlight why we need to limit our greenhouse gas emissions. It's definitely something we'll have to, to keep an eye on. Arian, thank you so much for coming on today. I think I really appreciate you breaking down all that science into human terms. Um, so thank you so much for your insights and hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, it's been great to chat. Thank you. Thanks, Arian. So that was Dr. Arian Purik there from Monash University breaking down the recent events that are happening in East Antarctica. Yeah, yep, some pr pretty uh, scary stuff there. Um, and I wonder if it's, yeah, difficult when it's um, uh, so far away from the rest of the world. So we talk a lot about the effects like floods um, and bushfires. Um, and I wonder if it's, um, yeah, tricky 
raising the alarm bells with everyone when it's far off and we all know these events are linked but it sounds like it's hard to get these concrete cause and effects so yeah hard to get people to pay attention yes absolutely now, uh, last week, Claudia spoke with the president of the Australian Uyghur and Tanratak Women's Association um, about the solidarity of Australian Uyghur diaspora in the face of ongoing human rights abuse in East Turkestan. Um, and at the time, we promised to play a piece of music to accompany the segment, um, but we ran out of time at the very end. Uh, so we wanted to play that for you today. Um, But just before I do, I wanted to give a quick mention to an upcoming event for listeners who want to know more about what's happening in East Turkestan, or Xinjiang, as it's officially known in China. Um, So this is a hybrid event hosted by La Trobe University to mark the launch of a new book edited by Dr. Michael Clark. It's called The Xinjiang Emergency, Perceptions of Uyghur Detention in China, taking place next Tuesday, April 5th. Um, So it's going to be a panel discussion, which will include Dr. Michael Clark, uh, along with Professor James Leibold from Latrobe's Department of Politics and Philosophy. And it's being chaired um, by Associate Professor Rebecca Straiting, who's Director of Latrobe Asia. Um, so the event's on at Latrobe. Um, it is a live panel event, but you can tune in on Zoom. Um, and that's on Tuesday, 5th of April at 6 p.m. All right, and now for the song. Um, so this is Chabiat Tazi Maragul.
If you want to hear us slam the atomic industry, then tune into the Radioactive Show on 3CR, 10 a.m. Saturdays. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Commons Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and now we're going to talk about Australia's intake of humanitarian intake of refugees and asylum seekers and changes, or lack thereof, to the foreign aid announced in yesterday's federal budget. Um, So we're joined this morning by Tim O'Connor from Amnesty International. Good morning and welcome to breakfast, Tim. Good morning. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for joining us nice and early. Um, Now, first up, the foreign aid component of the 2021 to 2022 budget saw a decrease from the previous year. Um, What did we see happen in yesterday's announcement? Well, um Importantly, we saw an increase, a slight increase, around $400 million, primarily to the Pacific. Of course, in the last few days, we've seen a lot of media coverage about uh, China's involvement in the Pacific, particularly in the Solomon Islands. Um, So I think that came as very little surprise and probably something the government inserted into the budget at the very last moment. I guess the overall trend with um, Australia's aid program is really, uh, unfortunately, downhill. Um, We uh, are giving about $4.5 billion, which sounds like a lot of money. Uh, but it really equates to about um, less than half of what we really should be giving, or much less than half of what we should be giving, um, compared to you know, the way they measure aid. In aid world is about gross national income and a percentage of gross national income, and Australia is giving about 0.18% or about, um, uh, well, I think we're 18th in the OECD, so we're really right at the bottom of the of the rich countries, and Australia is the 10th rich country in the world, and we're giving the 18th least amount of aid per capita, which is incredibly disappointing. Yeah, pretty shocking and embarrassing for us here in Australia. Um, and so this uh, figure um, uh, of double what we're giving, that comes when comparing ourselves to other um, similar countries? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, as I said, the, the OECD is kind of, they measure um, how generous each country is on um, like what's, you know, pretty boring kind of economic tech technical talk and you get a fair bit of that in the budget but um, on gross national income so that's the amount of uh, it's actually the value of all the things made in the economy is how they measure gross national income and then they me- measure how much each country spends as a percentage of aid compared to how how much the value of all the things they make um, Australia comes out at about 0.2 this year around um, the start of 2000 um, the Howard government actually committed to getting to 0.7% of gross national income but we're you know less than one-third of that, and mm-hmm. the trajectory over the next couple of years in the budget is, is downhill. 
Mm. And it was interesting, your point before, about how funding has increased for Pacific um, Island nations as probably a reactive response to, to China's uh, increasing influence over the region. How has the government's response to humanitarian funding changed over the last few budgets, particularly during the COVID pandemic? Um, we saw a big increase in aid spend in relation to COVAX, um, which was the kind of, you know, the international endeavour to try and get people in poor countries vaccinated. Um, of course, that's been spectacularly, um, you know, a spectacular failure in many ways. If you look at Africa now, just 8% of the continent, well, the people in the continent of Africa are, um, are vaccinated for COVID, which is pretty disappointing. The numbers are a little better in the Pacific and there's more money in the, this year's aid budget for, um, to increase the number of people vaccinated in the Pacific against COVID. You know, that's really welcome. Um, the Pacific's difficult place to work and you know people who've spent time there or work there understand you know as many people in the pacific islands know as well it's um it's difficult to get vaccines out there so you know australian humanitarian organizations have done a fantastic job but when you actually look at the humanitarian response which is a little bit complicated because the overall aid budget is broken into a few different components the humanitarian response component so the amount we spend on responding to emergencies um, surprisingly, when you think back over the last year, we've seen, you know, horrendous coup in Myanmar. 800,000 people have been displaced. We've seen the rise of the, that was back in February last year. Um, we've seen the rise of the Taliban return to power in, in August last year. And of course, the incredible, um, tragic implications that has for so many people in Afghanistan, particularly women and girls and, you know, ethnic minority groups like the Hazara. Um, the, the, you know, and then most recently the, the situation in Ukraine, which of course has captured the world's attention like those other two events haven't. Um, you know, the, the humanitarian response from Australia, you think, would be escalating rapidly. But what we're seeing over the four estimates is that even though Australia should be giving around a billion dollars a year to these emergency, you know, the specific emergency responses, uh, we're giving around half of that um, in allocations going forward over the next few years. So that's, that's really, really disappointing. We're just not really giving our fair share. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, Australia's been criticised for its kind of lacklustre response to um, uh, Afghanistan and to a lesser extent Ukraine. And as you said, it's been um, it's actually pretty heartbreaking to see the difference in the way we've responded to the two countries. Um, some good news yesterday was an increase in the number of refugee intake um, for refugees coming from Afghanistan. Um, how does this sit? Is it adequate? I think it's 16,500 over, is it four years? Yeah, over the next four years. I mean, we, we were really, um, I mean, it's a huge tribute to the, the people from Afghanistan who fought so hard for this and engaged the rest of the Australian community in this, um, you know, in this really public campaign that they've run. We were just in Canberra yesterday with representatives from, or the last couple of days, with representatives from um, the Ukrainian communities, um, from, we had, several people from Myanmar with us as well and also people from Afghanistan and they were standing together. It was just an incredible show of um, you know, humanity and power and strength and those people speaking to politicians about the situations that their communities uh, have faced and were facing was incredibly powerful. So we, we were super, um, you know, it was just incredibly welcome that there is finally the government is listening to um, the, the needs in Afghanistan. And so those 16,500 places which will come over the next four years are really welcome. Of course, the urgency of the situation in Afghanistan means that we really think that they should be bringing those um, places forward. Um, they're not going to start until June 
you know, when or at the end of June, start of July, when the next financial year begins. You know, our, our comment to Minister Hawke last night, who's in charge of this immigration minister, was we really need to get this, this um, rolling now because people are in desperate need right now. But it is it is really welcome. I guess in broader looking at the the refugee program, um, so Australia has agreed to bring around 5,000 people from Ukraine in as well. And that is welcome, and the, the speed with which that happened is, is incredibly welcome. But we really need to be extending that generosity. And this was the message that the community leaders are bringing to parliamentarians this week, was we need to be extending this generosity, not just to people from Ukraine, but people from across the, the board. And, of course, Australia can be doing a lot more in, for the people in Ukraine too, in a humanitarian sense. Yeah, I wanted to ask, I'm focusing for a moment on Ukraine. So I think Australia has so far committed $156 million or just over for assistance to Ukraine. Um, but it's curious how that's, uh, that money's broken down. So I believe that's a mixture of humanitarian, military and lethal aid. So what, what money's going where and how's it helping people? Do we know? Um, excuse me. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. I just haven't got those figures right in front of me at the moment. Do sorry. But, but, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no problem at all. It's, uh, it was a pretty late night last night and early this morning, but, um, happy to get back to you with those. But I think the, um, the, you know, we saw Australia send over 70,000 tonnes of coal to Ukraine, um, which seemed like an odd thing to be sending coal all the way from Australia to Ukraine when there are countries in Europe who have potentially better um, energy options, but obviously that's yeah. something the Ukrainian community is looking for. understand, actually, um, Zelensky is going to be presenting to the Australian Parliament on Thursday evening. Um, he's going to be talking to them at 5.30, I'm sure. He'll be making an ask for humanitarian uh, assistance, but he's really focused on the military response. And I think that's something that, you know, countries like Australia really should be ramping up the humanitarian assistance. Last night, we didn't see any increase in funding to the UN Refugee Agency, um, which is, again, you know, really disappointing when we're facing a really serious refugee crisis right around the world. Very hot crises in countries like Ukraine, obviously, when millions of people have, um, you know, now fled into Europe. And I mean, it should be remarked, you know, Poland's taken more than one and a half million refugees in over the last... You know, you know, a few weeks of this crisis, or more than a month now that this crisis has been going, mm-hmm. um, and Australia brings in thirteen thousand seven hundred fifty refugees a year. That ceiling is going to stay in place, as you said. The Afghan places are additional, but it's still really a paltry number. I mean, we were giving, we're bringing more than twenty twenty two thousand refugees in the mid nineties uh, when crises around the world weren't near as bad. You go back to how we responded to the situation post Vietnam War when, you know. 70,000 refugees were coming in a year and Australia had a had its hand out in welcome to people who were in desperate need. We've seen, you know, bring in 12,000 Syrians or people from Kosovo when that crisis was happening. Uh, we really need to be ramping up our humanitarian support because the world is in serious crisis. People need our help and Australia, you know, is the 10th richest country in the world uh, and we also haven't had many refugees come over the last couple of years. Only around half the, the cap number has arrived because of COVID. We've seen really limited numbers of migration. So it's a perfect opportunity now to open our borders, unlock the welcome and say, you know, please come in. Absolutely. And it, it feels like such a small number when we talk about, you know, Poland's taken in one and a half million and reflecting on kind of the, the large scale of people we allowed in a few decades ago. And I think it's very telling of Australian politics to be sending coal overseas um, in a crisis. And I suppose with the federal election coming up, do we think a change in government could potentially deliver changes in our current approach to humanitarian aid? 
Uh, there certainly is, you know, opportunities. Labor has committed, you know, if you look through its very long um, uh, policy platform, it has committed to increase aid to 0.7% of gross national income, which, you know, is the international standard. There are a few countries that, that are meeting that at the moment, but Australia, you know, as I said, giving 0.18% of that 0.7% is really, really paltry amount. So getting up to 0.7%, you know, that will be giving our fair share. We think that's something that Australia could look at. It's, a, you know, it's sort of tripling the aid budget from where it is now to 4.5 to about $13 billion in current terms. Um, you know, that's absolutely possible. You look at the concessions that were handed out last night to, um, you know, I think it's around $4 billion for the fuel excise cut. Um, you know, there, there's money there when the government wants to assist. And if we really want to engage in the world, we want to be uh, a leader in what is a... You know, the world is in a, a tricky place, um, then we should be leading on things like this. Definitely. And, and what can people do to help to push greater humanitarian funding onto the agenda for the federal government? I mean, I think very directly, I was talking to you know, representatives we were in Canberra with, speaking politicians from the uh, community of people from Afghanistan last evening. And they were already very busy on the phone to um, Chris Keneally and Anthony Albanese. And I think today and the next, you know, until Thursday, giving those people a call and saying, before he makes his budget reply speech, and saying, uh, you know, that Labor was very clear not or careful not to put any number on the number of people from Afghanistan that it would bring. Um, so it's really important to put pressure on the Labor Party in the lead-up to the budget reply speech, I think. Um, you know, and you've seen that organisation in the Afghan community where they were so quickly doing that. Um, last night was really, again, impressive. Um, so I think that's, you know, in the very short term, that's what we need to do. We need to say to, to um, the Labor Party, you know, the new potentially incoming government, particularly Immigration Minister Christina Keneally, we need to increase the refugee intake. Labor has said in that, again, very detailed policy platform that they'll get it up to 27,000. That's well below what the Greens are suggesting. They, should, they um, estimate we could bring in 35,000 people a year, which we think is absolutely doable as well. Um, we've got the settlement services in Australia, and, you know, um, have some of the best settlement services in the world in terms of torturing, trauma counselling and providing accommodation services, getting people into jobs and ensuring that they get access to Medicare and, you know, all the things they need to start to begin their lives. So, you know, Australia can do it really well. We've got that capacity. We should be doing a lot more, um, uh, both in our international aid program, but also in the manner in which we set refugees and the number of refugees which we bring. So, um there's, you know, get online. I think uh, actually it's got a fantastic resource about this Australian Cancer for International Development. The Refugee Council have done a fantastic budget summary. You know, you can have a look at Amnesty's kind of work in this space as well, but there are many organisations get, get involved with, with some of those diaspora groups, like the Afghan Australia crew, and they're, they're doing amazing work. Yeah, absolutely, and we'll put a couple of links in the show notes for the Refugee Council Australia's um, budget breakdown. Um, I think that's all we've got time for this morning. Sorry, Tim, but thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for being so patient with all my numbers. Yeah, our pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) I love numbers. Thanks for knowing the numbers for us. (laughs) (laughs) All right, take care and enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. And that was Tim O'Connor from Amnesty International talking to us about Australia's foreign aid budget um, and our intake of refugees, which, as he said, is sorely lacking. Shockingly low. Really puts it in perspective. Is, um, is nothing. Yep. And mm. what was it? 1.5 million in Poland to our um, 13,000. Um, it's pretty, yeah, pretty embarrassing. Um, mm. 
And, um, yeah, as he said, it is really important to put pressure on the Labor government in particular. Um, all these changes that were announced yesterday, um, it's pretty unclear, or many would say unlikely, that a lot of them are going to come into effect when, um, yeah, it's not looking good for the current government in power. Um, so, yeah, watch the space. We'll put those links on our show notes. Now we're going to go to another break. Um, when we come back, we're going to be finishing up the show. As we said, on a nice light note, we're going to be speaking with Brendan Black, co-writer and co-director of an upcoming play, Empathy Training, showing at La Mama Theatre soon. So looking forward to hearing more about that. Uh, but in the meantime, let's go to another song. Uh, this is King Sunny Aid.
Sierra City Arts and Umbrella Entertainment present Neighbourhood Watch, a pop-up outdoor cinema showcasing Australian films Friday nights throughout March. Head down to Linear Park, North Fitzroy, and catch free live music and films including The Big Steel, Storm Boy and The Babadook. BYO Picnic Blanket, Snack or grab dinner along Nicholson Street for Neighbourhood Watch. To find out more, visit yarracity.vic.gov.au forward slash rediscover. Yarra City Arts is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast on 855 AM. Melbourne International Comedy Festival is just around the corner and one show you don't want to miss is a play called Empathy Training happening at La Mama Theatre from April 12th to April 17th. The play looks at a group of high-profile and completely self-centred people as they undertake empathy training to resurrect their careers. And joining us now to speak on empathy training are the writers and directors Brendan Black and Martin Chalou. Brendan, Martin, welcome to the program. Oh, you there, Brendan and Marty? Yes, we are. Ah, excellent. Good to have you here. (laughs) Welcome. So tell us a bit about empathy training. What can we expect from seeing the show? Uh, Well, hopefully people can expect lots of laughs. Um, It's a bit madcap at times. And we've had a lot of fun writing it. The cast are having a lot of fun rehearsing it. And we honestly can't wait to um, show it to the world. Excellent. Yeah, I'm really excited to um, see this and I was um, reading about it. I was thinking I think a lot of us can relate to a lot of the themes in there. Um, I'm curious, were you inspired by anyone or any event in particular? Um, We're inspired loosely by some real events, um, such as, for example, the politician who had to do empathy training. Um, So when we were discussing what we were going to do, after our, our play last year, The Business of God, um, we just threw around ideas and that was one that seemed to stick and so we just ran with that and, um, yeah, developed it fully into a script. Mm. And tell us a bit more about the, the creative process because I imagine if this has been in the works for a little while, you probably had to, to deal with some lockdowns and things like that. What was it like developing it from an idea into a play? Well, we have um, done quite a few short films together and this was no different in the process that we normally have an idea and if we both <clears throat> like the idea, then we start developing the story and then we develop the characters and uh, yeah, we go on from there. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit different to a short film because there's a lot of editing and re-editing, but yeah, it was fun doing it. Excellent. And did you know the um, actors in the performance prior to writing the show, or did you select them after coming up with the story? Yeah, we selected after we did the script. We um, yeah did a, a casting process, basically just looking on on casting websites to find people who we thought would would fit and yeah we've been very lucky to get some very talented actors for all of the roles Mm, and tell us a bit more about um some of the characters that the actors will be playing i think there was one businesswoman who um was committing fraud of about five hundred thousand dollars am i correct um as in the real life 
businesswoman or... Um, one of the characters in your show, Cynthia. Yeah, Cynthia is a, a businesswoman, a, a fashion designer who owns a, a fashion label and essentially her fall from grace was um, when it's discovered that she's been using um, workers from overseas and, and paying them a, a pittance, yeah, and, and child labour as well. So obviously that... Um, is a point of shame for her in the in the play. My God, well, sounds like a, a familiar story, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, and have either of you ever um, had been forced to do empathy training yourself, or did you do some as a bit of research for the um, show? Um, essentially, yeah, we started by looking online just at empathy training, but I guess we didn't want to be hamstrung by um, what actual empathy training is so we just sort of went in our own direction um and we have we decided to write a character called sarah who's a psychologist who is the one guiding them through the empathy training um she has a few um issues of her own to deal with so there's yeah quite a bit of tension um during the show yeah it sounds like she's got a work cut out for her <laughs> yes um, so Melbourne's live theatre scene has obviously been massively impacted by COVID the last two years. What are you both most looking forward to about being back in the theatre? There just seems to be a desire by people to to get back involved in all the arts, which is really exciting. And, and as far as I'm concerned, I feel like we're going to be able to put this on, whereas last year we were not sure whether we'd get uh, full capacity at our shows, whether those shows be cancelled because of COVID. So this year there just seems to be a little bit more freedom uh, as far as we're concerned to put this play on, but also for people the freedom to be able to come and come to the theatre and enjoy themselves with a relative amount of freedom and security. Yeah, absolutely. And did you find the um, story evolved at all over lockdown? So did it affect how you um, connected with the story? It did a bit. Um, I mean, in the last 24 hours, we've kind of thought maybe we should write another character, an actor who slaps someone at the Oscars. Ooh. <laughs> who could that be inspired by? <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. We might get sued, but um, <laughs> I think that seems to be very very much comedy fodder at the moment. I'm, I'm seeing so many memes and all that re- regarding... <laughs> The slap. So maybe um, uh, Christos will have to um, write a sequel to his book, The Slap. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was a surreal moment. My partner was showing me yesterday saying, you won't believe the scandal from the Oscars. And I thought it was all, yeah, part of a um, pre-prepared skit. <laughs> so yeah. bizarre. There seems to be a, a real um, willingness for people to be outraged at the moment in society. And not so much outraged by their own behaviour. Yeah. 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 And do you think this um, uh, propensity to get outraged is kind of part of the cause of um, these uh, solutions? I was going to say that in uh, air quotes, um, like empathy training, which often can come across more as um, ticking off a box rather than um, real or meaningful change. I think so. I think um, some of the the things we tackle in the play um, and, and as will become evident, is, I guess, whether people actually do feel sorry for what they've done 
Um, but also, I guess, on the, the flip side, this expectation that um, everyone has to change, everyone has to publicly say that they're sorry, um, but also people don't always know um, all sides to a, a story, and, th- and that's something that we cover um, in the play to a, a great degree. Absolutely, and I think it's probably something that affects a lot of people from my generation, Generation Z, because there seems to be um, a lot of sort of differences between the public image and the private. Um, and I think that relates a lot to the character of Madison, who is an, an influencer. Am I correct? Yes, yes, very much so. Ma- Madison was probably the the most fun to write, simply because she says the most outlandish things. Um, which if any other character said, you might think, uh, yeah, why is that person saying this? But when it's an influencer saying it, um, I think everyone will understand why she's saying it simply because, um, she's quite wacky herself. (laughs) What's her, what's her platform? Is she a TikTok or an Instagram girl? Oh, she, she's both. She's, yeah, multi-platforms to appeal to, um, lots of, lots of people. Excellent. All right. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to it. Sounds like a lot of laughs in the play. Um, give us the plug. So it opens in a couple of weeks. Is that right? Uh, yeah, just under two weeks. Wonderful. And where can we get tickets? What's the opening night? Uh, so opening night is Tuesday, April 12th. And you can go to the La Mama website. So lamama.com.au uh, and search down the page for comedy festival and empathy training and then there'll be a link there to the try booking page to book tickets excellent and it's showing at the la mama theater courthouse right which is a really nice and intimate space um yeah it, it's significantly larger than their other theater so we're yeah we're hoping to um to pack um the people in and have a great show every night draw a good crowd all right well i think you'll have two guaranteed members in the audience right here (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks so much for joining us on 3cr breakfast this morning guys i really appreciate it thank you thanks for having us and best of luck Best of luck. Wow. Sounds like or break a, a leg, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> Not down with the theatre lingo. Yeah. <laughs> Dorky uh, goodbye for a cool sound and play. <laughs> <laughs> so if you missed it, that was Empathy Training and it's happening at La Mama Theatre. That's L-A-M-A-M-A in Carlton. Um, and it opens on the 12th of April. So get yourselves down there and see some live comedy um, throughout the comedy festival coming up. Yeah, it's so nice to be able to go back out there and see it live um, this year. I've already, yeah, gone to a couple of theatre productions. I'm looking forward to more. It's, um, yeah, mm. one of the areas which is pretty hard to move online, really. I think a few people have tried, but, yeah, it's hard to match that atmosphere you get with a live audience. Absolutely. And do you have any tickets to any productions coming up? Uh, no, not really. I've got, um, I'm seeing a, it's a play that's adapted from Bob Dylan songs, um, the girl oh. from, uh, the Snowy Mountain. I'm going to have to double check the name. My mum has bought me a ticket. I've got my parents coming down from Brisbane to take me out to a play. <laughs> um, so I've heard good things about that. I think it's a pretty big production. So it's been a long time since I've seen something of that size, um, mostly been sticking to La Mama recently, but yeah, mm. looking forward to getting out there. That is very, very sweet. Well, I have tickets to a um, 
a burlesque show called Shreklesque, and it's, it's like a um, yeah, a burlesque storytelling of of Shrek. So, oh, well, um, I love Shrek and I love burlesque. So <laughs> how can you go wrong? <laughs> I'm, I'm just really looking forward to seeing like a sexy Shrek. I think you know he's been very understated character, and yeah, now it's time for him to come out of his shell. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Live on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't get enough talk about this. <laughs> All right. Um, so I was thinking we could finish up with a song today, Ease Out of the Morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to pop on Greetings by Joni Hastrap.
Oops, sorry, I was going for the fade out there, but I accidentally shot my laptop screen, so it was a bit of an abrupt end. <laughs> that was uh, greetings from Joni Hastrup. Um, and you've been listening to 3CR Breakfast this morning, and I think that's a wrap this morning, right, Jacob? Yeah, and what a great show we have had. Yeah, yep, good mix of content, the heavy and the light. Um, always nice to finish up on a lighter note. Uh, so, yeah, big thank you to our guests this morning, and thanks to listeners for tuning in. Up next is Stick Together, and you're on 3CR. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.